taking you inside the games we love. This is Bill Roden on Sports. Hello, everyone. This is Bill Roden, and this is Bill Roden on Sports. I'm here with my friend and co-host, the great Jamal Murphy. Good to be here. And with the wonderful producer that's been making rapid, rapid strides here in airtime, uh, Pat Antonetti, right? Did I pronounce that correct? That's correct. Right. Now, today we don't have a mic for you, this is Pat, so don't worry about it, because the Jets got destroyed, and in fact, the Giants got destroyed. This has been a terrible, this has been a terrible day, a, a terrible weekend, 48 hours yeah. for New York sports, but we've had a tremendous uh, a guest, the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar will be our guest, and Kareem has got a really remarkable documentary on his life called Minority of One, and we're going to talk to Kareem, but we've got to, uh, to do the wrap-up and obituary. <laughs> if you're a New York Mets fan, which you two guys are, right, right. just if there's ever a definition of a team that's getting outclassed, it's the Mets. I mean, I mean clearly, Kansas City was just, at, at almost at a certain point, it became like taking candy from a baby, you know. Well, at, at the end of the games, because well, they were, when, they when were all tough. They were, no, you're right, but I'm just saying, you know, just to stick up for the Mets, they made they were what well, they were games up until the end, and then Kansas City outclassed them from the eighth inning on. Right, but it's, it was almost like formulaic. Right, you know, the Mets would get up, and then at some right. point, you like knew the road coming. runner, you knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. Right, it, it was what they call it. They start calling it what is it? An assembly line. Uh, right. A conga line. Yeah, keep the line going. That was their whole hit here, stolen base here, and it's almost like the game on Sunday was almost a final exam right. of everything, you know. But let, let, let's let's start with what I think. There are several turning points. I thought the turning point was when, you know, Matt Harvey had him locked down. He had, he had the, the Royals on lockdown. Right. He had Dyson, not Dyson, but he had. Um, Kane, Lorenzo Kane, swinging his shit in the dirt. Right. He had he had him. You go into you finish eight innings, right? Eight innings. Yes. Two zero. Right. Is home free. We thought. We thought. Then we or see. Not. Then we see the conversation in the dugout. Uh, Terry Collins made the prudent decision. He said Matt, you took us where we wanted to go, but oh no, he wanted to play hero ball. Harvey, Harvey wanted to be the hero. Right. He wanted to be the hero, and Collins told him. But, so listen, let's listen after the game. A crestfallen Terry Collins talks about what happened. Well, you know, we I, I told him that uh, you know we were going to go. That was enough, and he just came over and he said, "I, I want this game. I want it bad. Yeah, you, you got to leave me in." And I said, "Matty, you, you know, you've got us exactly where we wanted you to get you." And he said. I want this game in, a, in the worst way. And so, obviously, I let my heart get in the way of my gut. And, you know, I love my players, and I trust them. And so I said, go get them out. And he went out, and, you know, the leadoff walk uh, started off. But, you know, you, if, he's, if you're going to let him just face one guy, you shouldn't have sent him out there. So with, when the double hit, then that's when I said, well, we got to see if we can get out of this with only one run, and um, didn't work. So, All right, Jamal, what's your take? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's, who's the GOAT? The GOAT, unfortunately, and I don't really blame Collins for this, but he has to be the GOAT. You are the manager. You made the decision. The decision didn't work out, so he, he takes the blame, and he did 
he stood up like a man and took the blame in the press conference, so you have to give him credit for that. Harvey takes a little blame to me because, like you said, he played he played a little hero ball there. Doc Rivers is somewhere shaking his head <laughs> at that because even in the eighth inning, it was clear he he lost a little bit of velocity. He gave up a couple long fly balls, so he was he definitely didn't have the same stuff in the eighth inning, even though he got out of it. So for that, you know you. Ha- I mean, Harvey should have recognized that. I know you're a competitor, but you have to trust in your teammates. You have to trust in Familia. That's his job. You you got through eight innings, and look how it turned out. He could have left that game after eight innings being a hero. Familia gets the save. But now he tries to go nine. He's anything but a hero now. And, I, and I'm just hoping this doesn't carry over until next year and affect him in any way. I just don't know would any pitcher – if you ask them or you want to come out, would they say, yeah, take me out? Like no, any competitor is going to want to stay in. And that's why I think Collins needs to make up his mind, his decision. Whether we agree with the decision or not, it's his decision, and he has to make it. I don't think asking the pitcher. Um, he didn't ask him. Remember, he said, you're out. And so the guy comes with bulk. He corned. He all he, he does everything but corn him. And then, but then said, he's got, I want to. You know. I mean, what are you gonna do, man? He's I mean, got to. He's got to. What's he gonna do? He's got to say you're coming out. We took us where we wanted to, like like he said, and then let Familia come in and get the save. And now, now, and, now, now, to 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 Harvey's. It's not like we're talking about the Royals bullpen. I mean, it wasn't like. This is my question though. If he were on, if Harvey was a Royal. If Harvey was a Royal and had bought into that system, it never would have got to that point. He wouldn't have been telling Ned, yo, no, 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 don't take me out. I, and that's 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 a problem. That's, that's a problem. That's true, but he would also been up, in that scenario, he would have been up 3-1. He would have seen his bullpen uh, finish out games. Familia, I do, I still have total faith in Familia going, going to next year. I would have had faith in him uh, last night for one inning. He, he, he pitched the 10th flawlessly, got through that 10th. That should have been the ninth, really, if everything would have gone as planned. But Familia did blow a save in that first game, So Har- and Harvey did see that. And I, actually, Harvey pitched that game. So, man, so maybe uh, maybe that's an issue there, too. You know, they, there's, they're throwing out – I mean, it's a true stat that Familia blew three games in this World Series, and I think that's he's the first pitcher ever to do that, have three blown saves in the World Series. But really, only one of them was a blown, was a true blown slave, and that was that game one. He had help from Murphy in the next one, and then this one, uh, Duda threw the ball into the stands. Yeah, you gotta make make that throw, right? A, a more a more experienced first baseman should have made, would have made a, a strike in there. I mean, almost was like Duda went back to his outfield days and tried to gun that in, and you gotta make that throw. Let's look, let's look at that. I wish I would have brought my play-by-play because it was classic. You have um, uh, Dyson come in, the base dealer. Uh, what's his first name? Um, Gerard, Gerard Dyson. Now, he comes in. Everybody in civilized America, the only reason this guy comes in is to steal. Everybody knows it. And so we've got so – so it's not a matter of if he can he do it, when is he going to steal. So it's just like clockwork. He steals the base, base hit. No, 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 not base hit. Mustakis, I think, uh, sends him over to third on a, on a ground out. Perfect. He hits it. He moves moves run over. Uh, Gerard uh, Dyson goes to third, right? Next batter up, base hit. 
just like that. I mean, just like boom, right. boom, boom. And, uh, yeah, and, that, just, and that was the extra innings. Yeah, that's what happened in the extra yeah, that's, innings. That's 12th, 12th, yeah, the 12th, 12th inning. 12th inning. And that's what they do. And, and at that point, you know, I'm a Mets fan, but I, I kind of knew it was over at that point. <laughs> you, because this is what Kansas City does. And also, on the other side, the Mets have not, you know, all season, even the regular season, they weren't. They didn't do well in these close games. They went into extra innings against good teams. And I saw them blow games like this against Pittsburgh and you know other teams. So yeah, once it got once you get past familiar and the game goes in extra you know, innings, it's just a matter of time, right? But, but let's go back to that. I guess it's the ninth inning. I, I thought that Wright may have. And again, it doesn't matter because it's over and they're all going to Florida on vacation. But you know, Wright ground ball to Wright. Uh, the runner's on third. Now, of course, he does the right thing technically, and he looks at him. But if he looked at him, he would have noticed that he still was dangerously down the line. He didn't look him back. He didn't look him back to third base. I mean, to third base. Instead, he threw. And as soon, as soon as he threw, was it? Who was it? Who was it? Uh, it was uh, Hosmer, right? Uh, yeah. Hosmer, who had been a who's been a nightmare. Just his yeah. face. He's been a nightmare. So I mean, listen. I think that this is one of those cases where the best team won. There was no reason to go back to Kansas City because we all knew who had the best team. Why waste all the fuel and go back there? Kansas City's got the best team. They proved it, I think. And even, you know, it would have been nice to have game seven, but I think it was clear to even the most loyal fan that, you know, Kansas City just has the best team. That's That's true. I agree with that, but – I mean, it was hard. It was heartbreaking. I mean, yes, we knew. We, you know, you kind of feel like this is going to happen because we should know this is how these games have ended all series. But the Mets do a good job of luring you in. I mean, Harvey pitched eight shutout innings. You, you know, you're right at the doorstep. And then don't forget, if he would have won, I know you say it's over anyway, but the pipe dream is you still have Degrom and Syndergaard for six and seven. So it's possible, right? right? right. But you're right. The better team won. The moral of the story for me as a Mets fan is you can't you, you can you're not going to win a World Series with a second baseman who can't field his position and and uh, you know I'm not trying to disparage Murphy too much a great hitter great offensive player but we knew he was a liability all season just, at second it, base it, it it was it was you were getting away with it I think right. people got so inebriated right. with the home runs and all that but here, here again I, we talked about this before the young arms. Right. They were making these guys, and I think I think it kind of pissed Kansas City off. You know, you got Syndergaard. You know, I mean, it was, it was a nice moment. You know, the other day was Friday when he threw when he right. threw at. Um, I think the ball got away from him, but you know. Well, yeah, whatever it was, but Kansas City was not amused. They were, right, they right, were right. not amused. They whatever weren't. it was, they said, you know what, we're gonna. And I think they said, you know what, yeah, let's bring your butt. To Kansas City, right. So anyway, yeah, they were. You know, Kansas City was the better team. They were, right. they were the team that was supposed supposed to do this. From you know, they've been thinking about this since last November. And, and that you know, I, I spoke to the owner. Um, uh, I don't want to glass. Um, I, I spoke to him last, and from the owner all the way to the last, everybody said that from spring training. Right. In fact, right from from almost March, we were focused on this. This was our only focus is to get back here. And so I think there's something to be said in all sports uh, to conviction. Having, right. having the depth of conviction 
uh, when Cueto come, when, when right. a new person comes in, and says, listen, this is what we're about. Right. We want to get back to the postseason. And so. and it's part of the game. Experience is a big, you know, fielding is a big big factor. Hitting is a big factor. Experience is a is a huge factor. Now the Mets' young pitchers, who I you know they were hyped, I think rightfully so. They you know they have this experience now. You can only get better from I I hope well, Harvey. I don't you know I don't know. I think he, he's strong enough to get through this, and then he trade, won't think I about it next trade year. His ass to Toronto. So. <laughs> but I mean, you you know these guys, these young guys, they're all going to be still under twenty seven. They're coming back well, you know next what? year. You have five. You you have close to four or five aces next year who now have yeah. the experience and, of going through this. And the, and the, the the Royals owner said he thought that thirty years ago after they won and after the right. Kansas City Royal. One eighty five. Oh man! No, I know nothing is guaranteed. Run. Nothing's so guaranteed. Here it is, thirty years later. So you just never. You, right, you when never it know. There, you better get it. That's true. Well, you better get it once there. Well, and but they didn't have the roster to do that. You know, bottom line. All right. Well, now, so now it's a Sandy Alderson question. But <laughs> right, yeah. that's true. All right. Well, anyway, coming up next, the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He didn't leave anything on the table. No. One of the greatest, maybe Man. the greatest, right. of all time. I agree. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Taking you inside the games we love. This is Bill Roden on Sports. Uh, and I've got a tremendous guest. I, I uh, like to welcome in Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Kareem, welcome and thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, no problem. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, now this is um, the, the documentary is Minority of One. It, it airs tomorrow on HBO. It's it's really truly remarkable, Kareem. And let me just say uh, one thing before we begin the formal part of the interview. I, you know, we've known each other for for a long time, and I must say, man, just um, uh, athletically, but also in terms of all the stuff you've done, I really have a great admiration for you. And, A, I think that you may be one of the greatest, maybe the greatest athletes of all times in terms of winning, the winning, the winning, uh, a winning record, having a, 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 a winning, a, 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 the, the winning competitive spirit, but not just that. Not just that. I think really what separates you is just your scholarship. Uh, there been 10 books. Uh, there have been... Uh, this is, I think, your second documentary uh, on the shoulders of giants was a classic. I just think that, uh, and I've told people this often, that if you're looking for a model of what the quote-unquote athlete citizen is supposed to be, I think you uh, you really embody it. So I wanted to get that out the way uh, and and say that because I, I, sometimes I don't think we give people their props while we're here on Earth. <laughs> so well, thank you very much. No, no, man. I, I just think. Um, what you've accomplished in your life has been uh, extraordinary. And maybe we should start with this, because you addressed this at the very end of the documentary, but you were explaining, you know, a lot of times when people talk about, you know, you and maybe even Russell, they say, well, you know, the personality, it goes from what you've accomplished to your personality. And you, you addressed it at the end. Um, is that part one of the reasons why you wanted to do this, is just to, 
just sort of clear it up. Say, hey, man, I am who I am, but let's just deal with the stuff I've done. I, I just wanted people to have some understanding of uh, how I ended up being the way that I was. You know, I, I don't, um, you know, people have tried to paint me as antisocial, you know, and I, I'm not antisocial, but I am, you know, I'm, I can be a hard person to know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I have to, uh, you know, I have to admit to that. Mm. Why, uh, as much stuff as you, know, why, why this documentary, uh, and and why now? Uh, like, it's, uh, Shoulders of Giants was extraordinary, and most of the, the the books you've written, and I do want to talk about this, the last book, which I think is tre- is tremendous, sort of the black, the Afrocentric Sherlock Holmes, but you've done so much nonfiction. Why? Did you choose this time to do this particular documentary, which was revealing? Well, you know, um, after my, my mom died in uh, 1997, and I had to take care of my dad. And by that time, he was dealing with dementia. Mm. And um, he needed somebody to take care of him. So, you know, that, that was on me. I was the only person in his family you know, capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know a whole lot about my dad, you know, uh, when I was a kid. I, I only knew what he would let me know. You know, uh, parents more or less filter their lives <laughs> for their kids. They don't use bad language, and they try to present the the, the perfect example for their kids. That's what most parents do. That's what my father did. But so I, I didn't know what his personality was all about and who he was uh, away from being a parent. So it was, uh, it was a revelation to me what I found out about him in the eight years that I took care of him, you know, until he died in uh, 2005. And I didn't want to be a mystery man to my kids and, uh, you know, just pass on without them understanding how I got to be who I am. So that's what it's all about. Mm. You have your five children, right? Yeah. Uh, what, what What has been, well, before I ask you about what's been their response, you know, for those of us who sort of grew up watching you, um, what is there, is there, is there, are there things in this documentary that people who thought they knew you will say, wow, I didn't know that. Uh, is there anything that, when you start thinking about your life, even was a surprise to you? Um, well, I, I'm sure that there would be things in there that uh, people wouldn't expect me to talk about or um, that they would find surprising. I, I, I'm sure there's probably some stuff in there of that nature because I just didn't share everything with everybody. Mm. You know, so uh, you know, I, I kept I kept my own counsel, and um, I I didn't really talk about my private life with the, very many of the people that uh, would, were curious about it, especially you know reporters and, and writers. I, you know, I, I tried to you know maintain some privacy. It's something that I always thought I had to fight for because I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't the type of person who who could get it. You know, you can walk out and in the public, people aren't going to know who you are, and um, 
start taking notes. But me, I'm in a different situation altogether. People immediately know who I am, and I stick out. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it puts me in a situation where, you know, I, I had to, uh, in order to maintain my privacy, I, I have to fight for it. Hi, Kareem. This is Jamal Murphy. You know, people always describe you as uh, misunderstood. You know, other people characterize you as that. Is that something, it sounds like you agree with that. Yeah, I, you know, I I didn't try to be understood. I just tried to maintain a, a little bit of uh, private space. And in doing that, um, you know, I, I turned a lot of people off. You know, I, and I, I could have done a better job. Uh, especially relating to the members of the press, because we got to work with you guys, you know. It's not like uh, our jobs are something that you guys have to write about and we don't have to talk about. And I did a really poor job of uh, being that person, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, what is it that you're most... Uh, I, I talked about this documentary, Shows of, of, of Giants, um, what is it that, that, you know, a lot of people are going to see this, and, and like I said, it's a really extraordinary, uh, extraordinary documentary. Uh, one of the, um, I, I, you know, and I guess because we've known each other so long and some of the stuff I, you know, kind of live with, particularly um, just the tragedy in, in, in Washington, when you went back through that, was that painful to, to relive or has time, well, I know it's always going to be painful because there was just such, an awful loss of life, but has time given you a different perspective on that? Uh, that you know, as you were putting it together and you were deciding how to tell that story, has time shed any new light, any new perspective on, on that particular period of your life? Uh, there's not much new perspective uh, to be gained there. You know, uh, the guy who was in who. My father introduced me to Hamas, and uh, I always, you know, thought that I could learn a lot from mentors and, you know, people older than me that that knew more than I knew. And, uh, you know, Hamas assumed that role in my life. And uh, it wasn't until I realized that he he wasn't all there uh, mentally that, uh, you know, I I realized that, that... a lot of the stuff that he did was very manipulative and uh, really negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, you know the 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 uptake on that is, you know, after all these years, it's uh, it's still the same. Uh, it's the same thing that happened. You know, he uh, mm-hmm. he misused his uh, his position, and uh, you know took advantage and, uh, you know, portrayed himself as uh, some type of leader when, uh, you know, he was just an ordinary person like the rest of us. Mm. You know, I, I, as I was watching the, um, the early part of the documentary, uh, the, the, the uh, El, you know, the Elvin Hayes part, you know, the famous first game where they upset you, of course. First game we played them was my sophomore year when we beat them in the NC2A yeah. tournament semifinal. Yeah. That was the second game. The game oh, with, that we with lost. the eye patch, the eye patch game. Uh, yeah, the eye patch game was the second game. <laughs> right. That was my junior year. But right. my sophomore year, we we played them and beat them, and um, 
the iPads game uh, was the second one. And, and you killed him in the, they killed him in the third game. I guess my question was, I was wondering as I was looking at that and I was looking at, um, you know, the uh, when, when um, Ken Benson sort of sucker punch, you know, when he hit you in your, your solar plexus and you came back and hit him. I was just wondering over the years, what's been your relationship with um, with Elvin, with uh, uh, with Benson, and with um, just other, you know, have you have you kept? I know, and and with Oscar, as a matter of fact, what's sort of been your relationship over the years with 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 these with these guys? Well, I have a pretty friendly relationship with with Oscar, and I, I managed to uh, bury the hatchet with Kent. You know, hmm. uh, he approached me. Uh, on the seventh fifth anniversary of the NC two A, because they uh, they acknowledged uh, his uh, Indiana team, so we were there together. And uh, you know, he said he wanted to talk to me and you know put that behind us because uh, it uh, it wasn't what he was about. And uh, for my part, that's not what I was about. You know, I, I was about competition. I wasn't about taking shots at people. Mm, that's great. That's great. Uh, yeah. Yeah. How, how how are you feeling these days? I think we, you know, we, uh, as you mentioned at near the end of the movie, uh, there's the uh, there was a diagnosis of leukemia, and then your what you're doing to take care of yourself. How, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. You know, I, I have to uh, take medicine all the time. You know, I take medicine every day, but that's uh, going to keep me alive. So uh, you know, the thing that's uh, most important is that uh, your health is uh, improving, and uh, my health. Uh, I've got the leukemia in, in, in a place where I, I can manage it, and uh, it's as long as I take my uh, meds and do what the doctors tell me, uh, the leukemia is not going to be a problem. Right. Do, do you work out at all? Is there a workout regimen? Oh yeah, I, I, I still work out a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I also had a heart problem this year. Mm. It's been an intense uh, couple of years here. But uh, uh, I've had uh, quadruple bypass surgery, and uh, I'm, I'm doing fine. Uh, I had blockage in the arteries leading to my heart. And uh, that was just uh, something that uh, is that you inherit. Mm -hmm. Some people are uh, the type that collect uh, blockage. Some people don't, and I happen to be the type that does, and uh, I needed to uh, have surgery. But again, that surgery was successful, and uh, I'm doing what I need to do to, to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. has, has, has your faith, and I didn't really mean to go there, but has your faith helped pull you through this and put all this in perspective? We're, we're roughly the same age. And I'm always blown away, like when I see, you know, this early footage of you, or I see some early footage of myself, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm 25, 26, 27, you know, everything is wonderful, and you know, you never even think of this end game. You never think of, you know, uh, you know, aging and aging gracefully, and and all. We didn't plan for this, did we? No. <laughs> I'm like, no. really? <laughs> yeah. How do you, uh, you know, we literally talked about that, but as you get older, these, these things cramp up. I mean, once, like, about five years ago, I had to have emergency gallbladder surgery, you know. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking, yeah. wow, really? You know, you know when, you're, when you're 24 and you have a headache, 
you know, it's like the next day when you get older. It's, wow, is this it? <laughs> you know, I, right? You, you never know, man. Like musical chairs. But how? Just how have you found yourself? Um, just dealing, just dealing with, with being this picture of just virility and all that, and, and much of the film is shown. And now we're all these somewhat what fragile people. Well, there's nothing we can do about getting old, you know. <laughs> there's nothing we can do about it except uh, try to ride it out and do the best we can. I, I'm really. Um, just recently, you know, it's been a big concern for me just seeing some of the guys pass on the way they have, you know, like Moses oh, and Daryl Dawkins, mm. you know, mm. that's like unbelievable, you know, that because they, they, they were younger than me and they, uh, they ended up, uh, huh? Yeah, they were much younger. I mean, these, you know. yeah, they were much younger and, you know, they, they neither one of them are here now and uh, that's like, Wow. Yeah, cause I was, I was We're all so, so vulnerable. So we just need to do what we can to take care of ourselves and, and hope for the best. Right. So let me ask you a couple other things, Kareem. One is more of an NBA question. It sort of feeds into what we're talking about. Uh, you know, you look at your life, and I, I you know, I, I always had these conversations with Oscar. You know, Oscar, you know, Oscar can be a great critic, you know, of the younger generation. So I said, Oscar, what did they, what did the older guys say about you when you broke in? And so you know, every every older generation has a critique of the younger generation. And I was wondering what you think because you were uh, on the bench. I'm, I'm not sure if you're still a consultant with the Lakers, but you, there were that you were working out with. You were a coach, and you were working with people, and you you, you see you've seen generations of new the next wave of NBA players. I'm just wondering what your take is. Is you know, is, is, are things as better, as good as they've ever been? Is the, is the talent getting better every single year? Or, you know, um, yeah. Well, I, I think um, there are talented people that come into the game. I think it all has to do with whether or not the guys like the game. You know, I had to coach uh, Andrew Bynum. He didn't like the game. He liked getting paid. You know, everybody likes getting paid. But he didn't like the game. He didn't want to work at it. So it really made it tough for him to uh, maintain any any type of position of, uh, you know, helping the team because he wouldn't work at it. The drills that I gave him to do, um, he found boring, and uh, he didn't want to do them. So, of course, he, he, he didn't maintain uh, his advantage. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's not playing now. Mm. That's, that's really unfortunate. Other people that you see, though, uh, Stephen Curry, man, he loves the game. Mm. And he is a master of, uh, of the game. You know, I've never seen anybody shoot like that. So, you know, young guys coming into the, into the game uh, with that attitude are going to do well. And guys who don't appreciate the game uh, aren't going to do so so well because uh, if, they, if they don't care about it, you know, it's like it's going to pass them by. You, you've seen that happen to a number of people that have gone into the into the league thinking that they don't need to learn anything, and uh, pretty soon after that, they're gone. What would you take on Dwight, on Dwight Howard? 
What would I, what would I say about Dwight what, Howard? Yeah, what, what was your take on, on Dwight? Um, because um, I think Dwight feels that he doesn't need to learn anything. And, uh, people see him as a, as a very athletic and um, capable center. So, you know, he, he does have some game, but uh, he hasn't mastered the whole game, I don't think. And I think that's why his uh, performances have been up and down. What about the game as a whole in terms of stylistically? Uh, obviously now we see less of a, a focus on the center position or at least the center being in the post. Is that something um, you think has changed? You think that's a lost art, or do you think it'll come back, you know, things move in cycles? I know uh, Jalil Okafor is a good post player. Do you see that play coming back? Yeah, I think anybody who can learn how to play with their back to the basket and score right in close to the hoop like I did, that's a high percentage shot. That's an asset for your team. Stephen Curry shoots high percentage, is a high percentage shooter from like 35 feet. <laughs> right. Holy mackerel. I, I've never seen anything like that, you know? Except your shot, except right. the sky hook. To me, yeah. which is one of the, I think that has to be the greatest weapon in sports. I'm talking about all sports. We're talking about hockey, basketball, football, maybe with the exception of Jim Brown. You know, you're, I mean, the, the one most unstoppable shot in the history of sports, and nobody that I have really ever even tried to perfect it. Maybe they just said, screw it, because they can't. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they um, don't teach kids now to play with their back to the basket, and the kids want to shoot three-pointers. They don't, they don't want to shoot uh, a high-percentage shot and learn how to you know, maneuver with their back to the basket. So I think you know the style of the game is is changing, and uh, you know the whole idea of it being like a long range shooting contest has more appeal to a lot of the players that are involved in it now than it used to. What's your feeling as far as AAU is concerned? Um, you know, youth basketball. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how it's been bad for the game. Obviously, there there have to be some positives to it, getting players access to uh, to college and all that kind of stuff. But what, what's your overall feeling on AAU in particular? Well, the AAU, I think, um, kind of makes the kids cynical. You know, they they see they kind of see themselves as uh, maybe we're being taken advantage of, and I can't wait to get to the point where I'm going to make millions of dollars. I think they, you know, they see a fast forward happening where, geez, I'm going to go through college, do the one and done, and uh, then I'll be uh, making the big bucks. Uh, I think that's probably what has happened. And, uh, you know, there there may be some good to it. I I think it has uh, really made the IQ of the average player going into the league a lot lower because... They just think that, uh, well, geez, if I, if I can shoot the ball and I can jump and dunk the ball and rebound it, geez, that, that's all I have to know. They don't understand the subtleties of the game uh, that all the guys like from my generation had to go to college to learn, and it really helped us. It helped us mature 
going to class and stuff like that uh, in, a, in a college situation really helps us be more responsible and uh, a lot more uh, ready for professional life. So I think uh, a lot of that has uh, interacted with the uh, with the players and has uh, you know created a certain kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. Hey, Grant, what um, what is your take on uh, one of the one of the moments I thought that was great in the documentary, and there were several of them when we when when you start tracing your your evolution as an activist, uh, A, at UCLA, but the famous, the iconic picture of you, Ali, Jim Brown, uh, Bill Russell, that's, that's um, I, I actually had Walter Beach on the show a few weeks ago. You know, Walter was in the very back uh, with, in, of that picture with Mayor Stokes. Um, and, and people look at that picture and they're fascinated by it. And the question always comes up is that, could that happen again? Could that ever happen in this generation? I know Jim says, well, you know, now because the kids have age. But I'm just wondering, what, what do you think? I mean, you were, what, 22 when, uh, when, when that picture was taken? I think I was 20. 20 I was yeah. 20. Yeah, you were still, you were still yeah. at UCLA. You know, and, yeah. and it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. And so the question becomes, when guys now have more money, they're making tons of money, ton more money. You got, you know, do you think that moment could ever happen again, or do you think that a we as a people, I'm talking about black folk, we've become just so diverse, so whatever that that can never happen again? I don't know if that that's going to happen again. I, I had a lot of respect for Jim Brown and Bill Russell and those guys, and when they invited me to come to to uh, to share those moments with Ali and see if we could help him. I, I wanted to help him because I, I admired Ali that much. I don't know if the younger generation admires the older ge- generation to that point where they would be involved in a in a political situation like that. It, it all depends, you know. I saw some of the... Uh, I remember when the... Tamir Rice got killed in in uh, Cleveland. Yes, uh, some players from the Browns. They had something to say about it, you know, because they they were parents of uh, of boys, and they realized that their sons could get killed just like that in, in the same circumstances, and they were concerned, you know. So uh, it all depends. I guess one of the the, the the last things, and it's it's sort of about that. I, I want we were talking about activism. Uh, fine. What's your take on, on on Kobe or your your relationship with Kobe uh, and and LeBron too? These are I guess two of the iconic figures of the league. And just wondering what you think of them. I, I I think that Kobe is probably one of the most competitive people I've ever met, particularly for his generation. Uh, I wonder what you think of him and and and, and LeBron. Well, Kobe, yes, you're right. He's very competitive. He's hardworking. He's always prepared to go out and be at his best. I really respect his work ethic. Uh, I'd say the same thing for LeBron. Mm-hmm. And LeBron, uh, he doesn't mind uh, taking a political stance. You know, uh, when he came out with the uh, with the words on his uh, warm up jersey about "I can't breathe," mm-hmm. and uh, he was referring uh, to the young man who. Uh, was killed in New York by the cops. Mm-hmm. So 
So, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, there are some players who get it and uh, their responsibility to their community is something that uh, they're concerned about. And there's some that don't. But uh, LeBron, absolutely, he understands it. Um, Kobe hasn't done anything political, but uh, he's absolutely a warrior and uh, one of the great players that's ever played the game. You think it's over for the – well, let, let me let – me, not over for the Lakers, but where do you think they are in terms of getting back to where a lot of people want them to be? Do you think well, the Lakers are building, you know, and uh, I think if uh, – Boy, Hibbert does a good job just uh, defensively. If he can do a good job, it will absolutely uh, help the team uh, improve greatly. You know, I, I expect that they that they will make the uh, the playoffs this year. And this, the, the young man, uh, Randall, yeah. who broke his leg last year, he's playing very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, with Hibbert there, they, they're going to have some uh, – Front front line uh, seriousness, you know, it's not going to be just the. You can't. Uh, you, they will get some respect for the team because of their front line. Those guys will uh, make it very difficult for other teams to uh, just walk over the Lakers. Mm-hmm. Now that I've got you on the phone, did you ever want to coach? I know that I have all these discussions with people, uh, so you in at abstention, and I'm thinking if if there was anyone else. It has, has accomplished what you have accomplished in the game. No matter what the personality, no matter what, what they would have, you would have been a, a coach in the NBA or general manager, vice president. I'm wondering, A, did you really want to do that? And B, given your, whole, your, your scholarship and all the stuff you accomplished, in retrospect, would that have gotten in the way of everything you've done? Um, well, you know, if I'd had the opportunity to coach, I would have taken it. Because I, you know, I was curious about it. I coached in a minor league down in uh, Oklahoma in 2002. Mm-hmm. I was a head coach, and uh, I learned a lot. And uh, I wanted to continue, but uh, it wasn't meant to be. So it wasn't meant to be. <laughs> I, I can accept that. Yeah, yeah. Hey, well, listen, Kareem. Listen, this this has really been. Um... You know, re- remarkable the the, the uh, your body of work, this documentary. Oh, by the way, just talk about the novel. I mean, the the fiction. This is this this kind of kind of comes completely out the blue. How did you come up with this idea? Well, I've always uh, you know I, I started reading Sherlock Holmes stories my rookie year, mm-hmm. when someone gave me a complete compilation of all of the uh, Arthur Conan Doyle stories, mm-hmm. and. Uh, from that point on, I was intrigued with crime fiction, you know, mystery crime fiction. And um, I've read all of the, uh, you know, the great writers, uh, Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, Martin Cruz Smith, uh, Elmore Leonard, just to name a few. And I, I've always admired them and, uh, admire, you know, had fun reading the stories. And I figured that uh, I would give it a shot. <laughs> I think everybody everybody that writes thinks that they should write a novel, but they don't know how it's going to be received because uh, the story has to, you know, get through to people and people have to be into the story. So it's real easy to flop as a novelist. 
And I think that's why people uh, hesitate to do it. But uh, I'm glad I tried it, and um, it, it's, it's working out well. It's, it's been very well received. I work uh, with a very capable person, Anna Waterhouse, who's awesome. And uh, between the two of us, we got it done. Hey, well, congratulations, Kareem. Do you have another one on the? On, uh, do you have another either a documentary in the works or another? another well, the um, our our publisher wants me and Anna to do another um, Mycroft Holmes novel. So we'll see what happens. Hey, well, listen, Kareem, again, man, congratulations. Congratulations on a great documentary, on a wonderful career, great life. you got to mail me the secret of how you turn out these books, man. I'm struggling with it. Like, I'm struggling okay. with it. I'm like, how does this dude do this, man? <laughs> uh, but thank you so much, Kareem. It was great talking with you, Bill. Good luck, and uh, I hope this has uh, been something you have uh, enjoyed doing. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Nice talking to you guys. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.